good morning. It's me again. So I'm not Pastor Wayne. Hello. If it's your first time, I'm not the tall, bald guy. I'm the one that has hair. Um, he is on campus this morning. He is facilitating and checking out some of the ministry that's going on in all of our different buildings. And so, you get me. I am Dan Barber. I am the youth and adult ministry pastor. Hey, Welcome, glad you're here. Hey, this morning, church, we're gonna continue our time in the book of First Peter. We're gonna be in chapter two, so if you wanna start turning there and get your thumb or your bookmark in the right spot, go ahead and do that. But while you're doing that, I wanna begin our time together with a question. And the question is this, do I know who I am? You know, it's a question that resonates deep within the, the hearts of each human being, do I know who I am? You know, in what do I find my identity in a world that often bombards us with countless voices and opinions and expectations? It is so easy to lose sight of who I am from where I, I derive and I, I find true meaning and as each of us navigate the complexities of life, sometimes we find ourselves asking, who am I? <laughs> right, who am I in this grand tapestry of existence? What defines me? From, from what do I derive my purpose? And this morning I want us to think about this question and I would invite you, if you would, to come on a journey with me. We're gonna spend some time together in God's word. We're gonna use it as our lens for self-discovery. And I wanna just pray that in our time together today that we can explore the wisdom that we find in God's word and delve into the depths of our souls and the way that God created us in order that we can leave here today saying, I know who I am. Are you guys willing to go on that journey with me? Good, because we're gonna do it anyway. <laughs> so, join me really quick. I wanna pray just to get our time started. I'm gonna pray again really quick, and then we're gonna dive into God's word together. So pray with me. Lord, thank you so much for this time and this place that we get to come and we get to be your people. Lord, we're just so thankful that you are, like I said before, God, the author of all life. God, we're thankful that you have put us here in this place at this time, that you've given us your word as a guide to our footsteps and a lamp to our path, God. And we just pray that you will open our eyes and our ears to what you want to relate to us this morning from your word. Help me to get out of the way and help your word to go forth boldly and impact our lives and change us to look more like you to reflect you better to the world that we live in and everything we do. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hey, we're in week three of 11 of our Living for God in our World series, and Pastor Wayne has spent weeks one and two in 1 Peter chapter one, helping us to wrap our heads and our hearts around the truth that's found in there. You know, there was going on with this group of people that he was writing to some major conflict between them, right, and the government, between the church and the government. There was conflict between husbands and wives. There was conflict between parents and their kids. So 
basically nothing that, that we can resonate with or because none of us have conflict, right? Yes. Okay, just making sure you're all with me. It's the tension that we've talked about between the economy of the world and the economy of God, right? And the believers in 1 Peter were dealing with what some people would call mild persecution, right? From this guy, tyrannical leader named Nero, does anybody remember him? Wanted to build Rome even bigger, so he decided I'm out of space to build, but that area, the slums over there, it's not very nice, so let's burn it to the ground and when that decision wasn't actually very popular, he needed a scapegoat. So after he tyrannically built, burnt the city to the ground, everyone's coming after him. He said, the Christians did it. <laughs> so they were taking the Christians and they were literally, I don't want to get too graphic, using them as light posts at night to light up the night, right? They were using them as game in the, in the Roman Colosseum. They were dressing them up in animal skins and sending them in to do battle with lions and letting them be torn apart. Just mild persecution, nothing we've experienced. But I want to begin just to say that becoming a Christian in those days, choosing to live a life for Christ was no menial decision. If you were Jewish and you became a Christian, it meant leaving your family, your way of life, being ostracized and disowned and relegated to the, the borders of all of humanity. And if you were a Gentile, that's a non-Jew, and you came to Christ, you were still an outsider because you weren't a Jew. So Peter comes to them in chapter one in which he, we looked at the last couple of weeks and he said to them this. He said, Jesus died for you, right? And he told them about the truth of the resurrection and the cross. He told them that you were born again for a living hope through the cross and the resurrection, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and that you were born to an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading, an inheritance that Jesus is keeping for them and for us in heaven, guarded by his power. So he comes to these people, they're experiencing persecution, and he brings them this message of hope. So in light of all of that, I hope to examine this question. We wanna know who he's writing to. We kinda know the context a little bit. These are the people he's writing to before we go into that, before we read our passage, I wanna lay out one more thing for you. I wanna just, short verses from Proverbs 23, seven. We've covered this before. It says this, and it's in your outline, for as he thinks within himself, so is he. Right, this is the idea that Solomon's writing down about the inner character and the inner calculation that happens in each of our hearts. It's this voice that's asking, are you really in this for the right reason? Are you just trying to play the part? And I want to submit to you, these are the kind of people that were in it for the right reason. They were no longer just playing the part. So there's this guy named Dr. Charles Horton Cooley. Long name, we'll just call him Charles. He was a sociologist back in the 1860s. And he wanted to better understand how human beings thought about and why they behaved the certain way they do. And one of Cooley's most important contributions to sociology was this idea that by studying the everyday interactions between people, you could begin to understand why people behave the way they do. 
So Charles said this, and I just want you to listen. It's not gonna be on the screen. All of us have a pyramid or a ladder, right? Ladder or pyramid in our minds. Everybody tracking with me? No? So all of us have a pyramid or a ladder in our, in our brains, right? And on top of that ladder, we put the people that we respect. We put them up on the top of the ladder and we listen to what they have to say about us. What they say about us drives how we shape our beliefs and how we respond to the world in which we live. Let's hold on to that idea and then take what Solomon said in Proverbs and we'll pause for a minute. I wanna understand how these two ideas can work together. So the Proverbs writer, Solomon says, for as he thinks within himself, so is he. And Charles Cooley says that we give all or more moral credence and belief to the weight of the words of the people that we put on top of the ladder. Meaning, those we look up to and we hold in high esteem tell us who we are. So as Christians, right, the top of that ladder is not our world or our culture. It's not our wife or our husband. It's not our bosses or our coworkers or our children's or even our friends. On the top of that ladder is who? God. And sociologically, if we hold God in a place of honor and glory and influence and status in our hearts, which is his rightful place anyway, if we hold him in the place that he deserves, then as Solomon and Charles both agree, that should impact our life. And so as we read our passage today, I need us to understand that God's word is authoritative. It's not a suggestion, it's a command. Right, because if, if us as Christians have a ladder and God is the top of the ladder and he gets to tell us what to do. You know, Pastor Randy used to say that his grandchild called him and said that he made God the boss of his life, right? I like that imagery because as I read God's word, lots of times it's challenging and I don't want to obey. Anybody else, right? But I don't get that choice and neither do you. So as we read today, as we dig into God's word, we gotta hold him in his rightful spot. Everybody understand? Cool. Turn with me, 1 Peter chapter, four, chapter 2, verse 4 to 10. It says this. It'll be up on the screen too. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer, offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you 
are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So as we dig in this morning, I want us to identify, just real quick, the five main ideas that God through Peter is trying to convey to the audience as they read this part of the letter. These are the things that God says about them and he says them about you and about me. And you'll see these in your outline. Here's the, the top five list. It goes like this. Here's what God says about you. He says you're a chosen people. That you are a people belonging to God. That you are living stones. We're gonna talk about that one in a little bit. That you are a royal priesthood and a holy nation. That once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Do you guys believe that? This is important because what they hear Christ saying about them, right, as he sits in that proper place of authority in his, their lives, right, what he says about them is going to shape how they behave and how they act in the world in which they live, a world that was very much against them. And the same thing is kind of true for us, right? If you're going to succeed in this crazy world in which we live, and can we all agree that it's a little crazy? Yes, right? If you're going to succeed in this crazy world in which we live, which Pastor Wayne has looked at in weeks one and two, if you didn't catch it, you can grab it online. If we're going to strive and succeed in the world, we've got to begin to think about what Christ thinks about. Otherwise, you're going to be eaten up and spit out by this crazy world in which we live. So let's begin to walk through this passage together. This passage teaches us Four things that I want to highlight this morning. Four things about who we are as part of God's family. The first one is found in verse 9, and you'll see it in your outline. First Peter 2, 9, it says this. But you are a chosen people. The first truth about us as part of God's family is this, everybody. I am acceptable. Right? I'm chosen by God. Just let that sink in for just a moment, the sovereign creator of all, right? Holy, righteous, set apart, almighty God chose me and he chose you. Here's the deal, like everybody likes to be accepted. Nobody walks up to a group of new people and, and completely gets shunned by them and then comes back smiling and says, man, this is the best day of my life. Nothing better could ever happen to me than this moment. No, no one likes it. <laughs> but we tend to behave like that's more of something that only happens when we're children or angsty adolescent teenagers like over there, right? But... It happens to all of us, right? When I think back to my time as a teenager, I shudder at the things that I did or was willing to do just to receive acceptance from my friends or the people that I was trying to receive acceptance from. 
a child will forego, <laughs> right, all common sense and personal safety just because someone looks at them and says, bet you won't, or I dare you, right? We've all done it. We may not be thinking that we're doing it now, but as adults, we still do the same thing. Maybe it's not so clear as when we were kids. We're not licking the light pole anymore, but some of us might be. But our desire is still to be accepted. Whatever group you're trying to get into, you want to be accepted. And I don't know if you have a mind that works like mine but if you do, I'm sorry, and you should probably pray and fast and uh, seek professional help. But in my mind, I know what it feels like to not be accepted. It sucked. You know, I, I wasn't the best student. Uh, I had undiagnosed dyslexia. I've diagnosed it, but no professional ever did because I was smart enough to get away with it. And I'm proud of it. But... And I wasn't that great of an athlete except for when it came to like tackle football because I'm a big guy or kickball because I can kick the ball really far. But that's besides the point. The fact is this. As a kid, a couple things about me were true. A, I was a pastor's kid. Um, so already minus one against my social score. Uh, second was I was kind of proud of it. So I was that kid that would wear the corny Christian graphic t-shirt to school. And on the first day of school, my parents had a picture of me wearing it, and on the last day of school, I was wearing the same shirt, but it happened to be a white t-shirt, and now it had a bunch of like grease stains, and I was bigger, and it didn't quite fit as well, and so I was that kid. <laughs> and so, but I was also the kid that was fiercely loyal, and the few friends I did have that accepted me, I would go to bat for, and so a couple of my friends got targeted by the mean kids. You guys know the mean kids? These were the mean kids that like liked to follow you home if they didn't like you. And the moment you got off the school campus but you were still in the park area, they would like beat you up and try to take your stuff. So I would go to battle for my friends and it got me into some trouble. And then it got me under the target of those people. And so I ended up being the kid that was getting followed by the bullies. And I didn't want to, like I have like big heart but I didn't want to ever, but I had to defend myself. And I found myself at this place where I was just striving, you guys, to be accepted. I just wanted to fit in. But I didn't fit the world's mold. And it was hard. And I still look back, and I remember those days. Nobody likes to be shunned. Everyone likes to be acceptable. Even as believers, maybe you're here today or you're watching online and you've accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior and you believe that he's in your heart, but you still struggle with the fact that he's accepted you. And you're trying to perform for God. So when someone like Pastor Dan gets up on stage and starts to say things like, you could have a love relationship with God or God loves you unconditionally, you begin to think in your mind, don't love me unconditionally. I've got to perform. And if I don't perform correctly, he's going to reject me. And here's the reality, my friends. That's not true. Because what he says here in verse nine is that I'm acceptable. No conditions isn't based on how good you are 
it's completely and only because of what Jesus did for you on the cross. Paul agrees in Romans 15, seven, he says, Christ has accepted you. And King David in Psalms 27, 10 says, even if my mother and father forsake me, the Lord will receive me. And it's very interesting, right? Um, some of you may have grown up with parents who were impossible to please. Not me, because my parents are back there and they're awesome, so I'm not talking about them. But um, here's the deal. Some of you have projected that relationship with your earthly parents, or lack thereof relationship with your earthly parents, onto your relationship with God, because the Bible depicts him as a father. And you're acting like he didn't die for you while you were still in your sin. <laughs> or maybe you're thinking that, you know, someday when I act more righteous or I have better control of my, my quiet time, then, then I can have this right love relationship with God. Listen to me. You're loved not based on your actions. Not on anything you've ever done or are going to do. You're loved because you're his kid. Now I think back to when my sons, Boaz and Benjamin, you guys know him, them, when they were born, right? When I was in the hospital room with Liz and they came out, you guys know how that works or you don't and ask your parents. But when, when they took that first breath and I heard them, eh, right? Mine were a little bit louder than that, but I don't wanna hurt your ears. They had done nothing to deserve it. They didn't earn it. They were not worthy of it. They just were. They were just loved because of who they were, because they were my child, right? Because they belonged to me and Liz, because my love was theirs. God loves you like that. And I didn't get it until then, and I'm still growing in it. And you parents in the room might understand, maybe when they get teenagers, you won't like it anymore. But hey, Peter continues in verse nine. He says this, a people belonging to God. This is number two in your outline. The truth is this, not only am I accepted, but I am valuable. I'm valuable because I belong to God. Let's think about how this works, right? When we start to think about value, a lot of us start to do math. We're like, we're like, what is the value of my house plus my savings account and my 401k and my cars and my vintage Star Wars collection and you start plugging it into the Excel spreadsheet and you're like, dollar amount value. That's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is how God values us. The value Peter is identifying at the end of the day is not based on what you do or do not have. And maybe one of you needs to hear this this morning. Friend, you are not your stuff, right? Rather than your value arriving in just the dollar amount of your bank account at the end of the day, your value is derived and arrives in two areas that are true in the secular world and they're true in what we find here in the passage and they are this. The first and foremost way that something can be valued is this, is by what someone is willing to pay for something. 
Now think about this. You may have a nice house. You may have gone and decided to sell your house and you may have all the, the correct appraisals and comps of the whole community and a realtor's estimate and et cetera and a bunch of good feelings and memories from the house. But at the end of the day, your house is only worth what someone's willing to pay for it. And the second value is this. An item or a person is valued by who has owned it in the past. Now, I can talk to you about this. Some of you will geek out on this. Some of you won't. Any musicians in the room or people that like to pretend they're musicians? Good, lots of us. Hey, I, I don't know a lot, but I know this. I know there's a brand of guitars called Martins, and they're pretty nice. And I know that they make something called the D18. That is a guitar that I could drive down to Guitar Center and I could buy right now, and it would cost $2,700, $2,700. And some of you are like, oh, that's a lot of money, but some of you musicians are like, chump change, because it's a fine instrument. It can be used to produce beautiful melodies, right? Not by me, but by some of you who are skilled. So that's how much it's worth. That's what someone's willing to pay for it. But that same model of guitar that was used, still in pretty good condition, was on auction July 22nd of 2020, and it sold for $1.32 million. Why? Because it belonged to Elvis Presley. It was his guitar. 1 Corinthians 7.23 says this, you have been bought and paid for by Christ, so you belong to him. Right? You are worth Christ dying for you because that's what he was willing to pay. John 15.13 says, greater love has no one than this, that he should lay his life down for his friend. You have been bought and paid for by Christ. That's the first part of your value. And the second half says this, right? So you belong to him. You get it yet? We're Elvis Presley's guitar. We're just a $2,700 guitar, but we belong to the king. Not of rock and roll, but the king. Do you get it? Making sure, right? You've been bought and paid for by Christ and now you belong to him. So it's not about who I am, but it's about whose I am. I am valuable because of the price that was paid for me, which was death. And who paid that price for me and now owns me, who is God. Is everybody tracking with me now? Good. We're gonna keep going. And this is where the passage gets a little weird. <laughs> So you're gonna, have to, you're gonna have to forgive me because Peter is going to start talking about stones. And what you need to know is that in the Old Testament, there is a plethora of discussion about stones, most of them involving the Messiah and the prophecy that was going to come about him and this imagery that was used and what Peter's talking about would be very familiar to the people that were reading or hearing this. But we're all like, uh, Pastor Dan, we don't really build out of stone anymore, um, so we don't get it. And that's okay, 
But what I need you to know is this, that Peter was trying to elevate the value of them by painting a picture in their mind that their value was going to be that of a living stone. He says something to them that we don't really get, but to them, it was like this. Did he just, it was jaw-dropping. He says this in verse four. You can read it along with me. It says this. Come to the Lord, the living stone, rejected as worthless by men, but chosen as valuable by God. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. So what he's saying to them is this. All of the prophecy in the Old Testament, the stones, the cornerstone, the stone that was not built by the hand from the book of Daniel, right? Jesus fulfills all of it. And he's telling them, you no longer have to go to the temple or to the tabernacle or to the synagogue or to the priest or to Jerusalem that they could and we can experience Christ right where we are. Right here. Friend, your value is in what Christ has done for you and in that you are part now of a spiritual house. Not a building, but a living, breathing, active body, the living church, the bride and body of Christ. For a group of people that didn't currently feel like they were on a winning team, from a dark place where you go when you're beaten down time and time again, this told them, I'm valued. I'm part of something. You get it? They're being built not just into something that would crumble, not just a building, but something that was living and active, something that they could take part of, something that they didn't know that 2,000 plus years later would be the largest religion on the face of the earth and be growing and God moving and pushing back the gates of hell and still prevailing even today. They didn't know, but this is what he was trying to tell them. Peter goes on in chapter two, verse five. He says, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house and a holy priesthood. The next truth from our passage is this. Number three, I am capable and competent. Get this. You're a royal priest. Did you know that you're a priest? Kind of scary, isn't it? Right? You're all like, Pastor Dan, the one thing I don't feel like is priestly. <laughs> right? But if you are a believer in Christ, you are a priest. It doesn't mean that you're clergy in terms of a paid position, but you are a priest. You don't have to wear a collar or have gone to school, but you are a priest. This is what the New Testament calls the priesthood of the believers. Priest is a Latin word. Anybody know Latin? No, none of us do, because it's a dead language. Some of you study it back there. Yes, I know, I love my homeschoolers. They're the best, and private schoolers. But, 
priest in Latin means bridge builder. Let's hold on to that. We as Christians are supposed to be the people that build a bridge between God and man. This was a big deal because every Jew knew that the priesthood was from the line of Aaron. Not everybody was a priest. But Peter was telling them that it was no longer about your family lineage, where you came from, but rather that they along with us could come to Jesus and help bring others to him. So everything they had ever known and thought to be true about coming to God, that they had to do it in Jerusalem, that they had to do it through Judaism, that they had to do it in the temple, and all this imagery about stones being the things, all of that was shattered by this. And now it was revealed to them that they were the living stones as part of God's house. So I included in your outline just a couple of these. There's three, right? It says this, when we come to Jesus, we come not to the city of Jerusalem, but we come to the living stone. When we come to Jesus, we come not to Judaism, but we come into God's kingdom. And when we come to Jesus, we come not to the temple, but we come to God's spiritual house as a holy priesthood. So he uses this kind of imagery with them, becoming God's dwelling place as the people of God. Like I said, this was mind-blowing for them. So Peter continues to blow their mind. Verse nine, he says this, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. I think we need to talk about being a priest just a little bit more. Everyone turn to your neighbor and says, congratulations, you're a priest. Right, or hello, my name is priest so-and-so, right? It's, it's kind of silly, but we gotta think about this. What are the benefits of being a priest? First one was this. The priests were the only people that had direct access to God. Here's what this means for you. You don't have to go to someone else. You have direct access to God. You don't have to go to someone else to confess your sins. You don't have to go to someone else to have them worship God for you. No, you get to do it, right? In Mark's gospel, in your outline, something amazing takes place when Jesus is crucified. See, in the temple, there were different areas. There was the, most of the temple, and then there was this little spot called the Holy of Holies, right? And the Holy of Holies was separated from everything else by this big curtain. Let's pretend that it's right here down the middle of the sanctuary, right? And this curtain, on one side of it, stay over here, on one side of it was the Holy of, no, I can't be the Holy side. This side would be the Holy of Holies, and this is where God lives. If you guys want to see what holiness looks like, look over here, right? And on this side is where all the sinners were because only the priests could go into the Holy of Holies and only once a year and only after doing immense amounts of sacrifice. If you want to see what sinfulness looks like, it's over here. But you guys, all the normal people couldn't see where God lived. God only resided in the Holy of Holies. It was the only place on earth that he made his presence manifest and only the priests could go there. But in Mark's gospel, it says this, and it's in Mark 15, 18, to, or 38, 39. It says this, that the curtain, 
that veil that was from the top to the bottom, I gave it away. That veil in the middle of the room, right? The moment Jesus died was torn from what? From the top to the bottom, right? Meaning that the division between God and man had been taken care of by our priest, Latin bridge builder, Jesus. That his death built the bridge from sinful man to holy God. You're acceptable, you're valuable, you're capable, you're competent, and you have direct access to God now through Jesus. The second thing priests got to do was this. They had been gifted for ministry. 1 Peter 2.9 says that you are holy and pure You are God's very own. All of this so that you may what? Show to others how God called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Did you notice the emphasis I put on the word show? Right? It does not say each one of you is called to teach from this stage on a Sunday morning. Everybody say amen. Right? Nobody likes to speak in front of people, not even pastors. It doesn't say that you must be a theologian. It does not say that you must be able to explain where the dinosaurs went or how the kangaroos got back to Australia after the flood. You don't have to be able to explain the inerrancy of Scripture or know how the book of Revelation ends. It says show. You're going to show them how God has called you from darkness to light your story, right? You're going to be able to say, I was this, then God grabbed hold of my heart and changed me, and now I'm this. The world can't explain that away. It's your story, your testimony, and it is what each of us is called to do. First Timothy 1.9 says this, it is he who saved us and chose us for his holy work. A believer Not serving in the kingdom of God is a contradiction. You don't have to have a degree and there is no retirement age. It is what we were saved for. You are the visible image of the invisible stone, right? 1 Corinthians 12, I'm gonna hit a couple verses starting in five, says this, verse five says, there are different kinds of service to God, right? We've all been gifted to serve God, but we're not all gifted to work in youth ministry, right? Yes, I was waiting for the amen. But you are still called to serve in the way God's gifted you, right? Yes, we're all gifted and called to serve God with whatever gift he has given us. And I believe that if you're a Christian, you have at least one. Most of us have multiple. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 goes on and he says this, the Holy Spirit displays God's power through each of us as a means of helping the entire church, right? It's not by your own strength, but by his power, and it's not for ourselves, it's for the body, right? If you're not serving the body, You're cheating the body. 
I said we're all called to serve. And then he goes on in verse 27 and says this, all of you together are the body of Christ and each one of you is a separate but necessary part. If each of us doesn't use our talent to serve in the body, the church gets cheated. And worse than that, the world gets cheated. Things God wants done don't get done. And church, hear me as I say this, if you are still here, he still has something for you to be doing. Don't miss it. First Peter 2.10, we're almost done, says this, once you were not a people, but now you are a people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Number four in your outline is this, I am forgiven. Isaiah 43.25 says, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers them no more. In Ephesians 1.4, through what Christ has done for us, God decided to make us holy in his eyes without a single fault. We stand before him covered in his love. Have you accepted his love? If you haven't, would you think about it? He loved you enough to die for you. And he wants to have a relationship with you so badly. If you want to talk more or pray about making that decision today, over here to my left, your right, after I pray, are going to be some encouragers. And they would love to have a conversation with you about taking steps into a relationship with Jesus. And the last thing is this, to all my priests in the room, priests, right? The challenge is simple. You were dead in your sins, but now you're alive in Christ. Amen? Is that affecting anyone other than you? Right? Because if you are acceptable, if you are valuable, if you are capable and competent, if you have direct access to God and you've been gifted for ministry and you're forgiven, what are you doing with it? Would you not miss it? Let me pray. Father God, thank you so much for this morning and this time and this place. God, thank you.